0: I'm excited to get back into the book of Romans. I'm excited to uh, preach through this book, especially today is one of my favorite passages. We all know I say that about a bunch of passages, but I really mean it today, okay? Um, one of my favorite passages is Romans 1, uh, 16 through uh, 17. That'll be the, what we'll be basing the sermon on. And our Old Testament reading comes from Habakkuk 2, 4, which matches perfectly with Romans 1, through 17. Um, So here at Corner Canyon Church, we are a Bible preaching church. We believe the Bible is the word of God. So we go verse by verse through the Bible, because we think it is all helpful for the Christian life. And the not just the New Testament or the red letters are inspired, as Josh said last Sunday, but the both the all the Old and all the New Testament is the inspired word of God. Both point to Jesus, both have the gospel in it, and we are saved by grace, and they both teach this wonderful news. And so we get to read about it and learn about it as we know that our salvation is firmly rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. So reading from our Old Testament, uh, reading Habakkuk 2.4, Hear now God's infallible, inspired word. it is without error. Behold, his soul is puffed up. it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by His faith. And that concludes our Old Testament reading. And now from Romans 1:16 through 17, hear now God's holy word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So let's pray that God would bless and anoint the preaching of his word this morning. Gracious God, I just pray for everyone here uh, that as they hear the glorious gospel, that you would work in their hearts lord and if somebody is here visiting who doesn't know you that you would work in their hearts to have them trust believe and receive you as their only lord and savior of their life lord please work through your word and you accomplish mighty things through the preaching of your word though it seems foolish to the world your word is powerful to change and transform, it is power, your gospel is power, and that's because of your work, Lord Jesus. And so we ask you to be glorified this worship service, that um, that we would bless others through your word. And it's in Jesus Christ's name I ask all these things, amen. So I hate to start off on a negative note and be a Debbie Downer, but um, every single human being has a problem and it's a big problem. It runs deep inside all of us. And I say this is a deep problem because uh, the the root of this problem is the root of all our problems. It's the problem behind all of our problems. And and this is the issue we face every day. And this is the issue of justification. Now, when you hear that word justification, like you're like, yeah, that's not my problem, Nate. <laughs> you know, like that's like an ancient old, old wooden ship term that old ivory tower scholars use, you know, weird theology nerds talk about justification. This has no application to my practical life, Nate. Well, what does justification have to do with anything? But let me just tell you, this is not just a theological problem. This is a profoundly practical problem that every single one of us face. Because the haunting question, the question behind all questions that we have in our whole lives is how can we be right? How can my existence or your existence be justified? And you may have never thought about it in that way, but it motivates almost everything or everything we do. Behind most of what we do is what must I do to not be my life not be judged as a failure, as a mess up? This is behind all of our fears, our hopes, our dreams, our goals, our worries. It's the issues that keep you up in the middle of the night and of course, this can manifest in a bunch of different ways. How can I be the best person that I am so that I can, you know, successfully do well in my job, raise a, a well-functioning family, you know, and then if I do that, then my life will be valuable. Then I'll finally be worth something. Or other people think this way. Um, I've known people to think this way. You know, if I just got married and have a lot of kids, then I, I will be finally be valuable. I'll be worth something. And sometimes I've seen people go in the complete opposite direction. You know, I just don't want to get married and have kids like everybody else. You know, it'd be another cog in the machine. I I don't want to work nine to five. I want to do something special. I want to do something different with my life, just that marks me as unique and very important, you know, kind of a big deal. And so this is a problem because we never feel like we've done enough to be excellent in life, whatever that means. And there is no better person that has captured this very practical problem of justification better than, I hate to say it, Madonna. You're like, Madonna? It's like not some ivory tower scholar here. This is Madonna, the queen of pop, all right? So she says, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre that this is always pushing me, I push past one spell and I discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. I mean, this is just crazy to think about, that Madonna, who is known, by the way, for pushing moral boundaries in pop culture, even this person who is a self-described rule-breaker is even obsessed with the issue of justification. I mean, if Madonna has this problem, we all have this problem. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but, you know, it's it's the case. Um, And so this is why Paul here, this is a central concern in the book of Romans, is how can we be right? How can we be justified before a perfect and holy God? How can we have the divine stamp of approval upon our lives? And uh, the verse we were looking at in particular, Romans uh, 1 through 17, is the theme or the thesis statement of the entire book. And the entire book, show, this thesis statement shows us that the entire book is focused on the issue of justification. That's how big a deal this is. And so the, 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 the major insight here that marks Christianity from all other world religions, all other viewpoints, is that justification does not come from trying and achieving, but resting and receiving. Right. So let's begin looking at our text here, um, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I just want to stop right there. Um, that's a, that's a, a major line there. Um, And um, as I've been saying in previous Sundays, gospel means uh, good news. Um, And so why would Paul say that he's ashamed of good news? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you even say this? Like me saying, I'm not ashamed of the cure uh, for cancer. It's like, oh, okay, why were you saying that? Um, It's kind of weird, you know? Um, Why would he even say this at all, uh, that he needs to be... Uh, you know, not ashamed of it, like as if some people are ashamed of it. What? What's the point? And the reason why he would even need to mention that is not because of anything in the gospel. It is, as I said, good news, but because of us, because of human sin and pride, and our wickedness and sin. It seems to be said more often. Sin and evil are inherently unreasonable, irrational, not a good idea. It's not, it's never reasonable, no matter what someone tells you, it's never reasonable to be sinful and to be wicked. And because sin at its root is aberrant and irrational, it reacts negatively to good things, like good news. And so Paul described this reality where where even the, the sin in human beings can distort the good news to make it seem silly, weird, and bizarre, even foolish. And so Paul kind of captures this reality in 1 Corinthians 18. For the word of the cross, that's the gospel, by the way. The cross, the death of Jesus for all of our sins is the gospel. Is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so um, you've if you've shared the gospel before, you know that when you share the gospel, sometimes it can be really awkward, and sometimes you don't get a reaction at all. Sometimes you get a really, really bad reaction, like people freak out sometimes, or they get really angry when you share the gospel message to them. Um, And so we can be timid to share the gospel. And so Paul needs to say, hey, yeah, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Um, But Paul gives us a great reason as to why we should not be ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to continue reading here. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is how God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, affects salvation and justification and righteousness and eternal life through uh, the preaching of his word, through the Holy Spirit. And so we can't be ashamed of the gospel because it's the way in which God delivers us from our sin and misery. It matters if people are gonna have eternal life or not. Um, that's, I mean, it's we're talking about forever. We're talking about billions upon more than billions of years. And so when we're talking about eternal life, we have to risk making some people uncomfortable to give them the good news so that by God and his mercy we would save them. We really cannot be ashamed of the gospel at all. It saves people from eternal judgment and brings them to have eternal life. We just have to work prayerfully through any reservations that we have in our souls over that. And this really makes sense if you think about it. It makes sense to um, a magician and a comedian named Penn this guy denies, I'm gonna read you a quote. This guy actually denies the existence of God. He's an atheist, doesn't believe God exists. And Penn does this famous, uh, I mean, maybe this dates me. I don't even know if he's doing it. I'm sure he does it in Vegas, but he used to do it on, the, on uh, he had a show called Penn and Teller, it was a magic show. And um, I'm about to read you a quote where Penn is describing an account where a, a guy is basically evangelizing to him, giving him a Bible, and um, how much he respected him for that. And here's the reason he gives, it. it's connected to this. He's talking about the account with a guy that was a Christian that was sharing Christ with them. He says, he's an atheist now, you'll see it. It was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist, but he was not defensive and he looked me right in the eyes and he was truly complimentary. It didn't seem like empty flattery he was, he was really kind and nice and sane, looked at me in the eyes and talked to me and gave me the Bible. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. That's what he's saying. I do you not know, He says he doesn't respect people who don't proselytize. Um, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that's not really worth telling them this because it would make it like socially awkward or weird, And um, atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. How much, and here's a really, this is like very intensely saying this. um, He says, how much do you have to hate someone, someone to not proselytize How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and then not tell them about that? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and I didn't believe that the truck was bearing down on you, um, or I did believe the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I would just tackle you. And this is more important than that. And he's right. I mean... I mean, eternal life is way more important than physical life. We often forget that, we get comfortable and relaxed in our Western culture of prosperity, but yes, eternal life is infinitely more important than just our physical lives. Now, when Paul says to the Jew first and then to the Greek, um, people have understood like, Or misunderstood, I should say, not understood. Misunderstood, Paul to be like endorsing racism here, like, oh well, you know, Jews are better than Greek people, you know. But um, yeah, the Bible is not endorsing racism here. Um, What he's expressing is the idea is that historically salvation would come through the Jewish nation, and then we're going to read in Romans 11 how the Jews are hardened for a period, and then the Gentiles come and make the Jews jealous, and then there brings a mass conversion of Israel in Romans chapter 11. And um, the Old Testament makes clear that, in the New, that God uses all nation groups to expand his kingdom. And it also makes, makes it clear that the reason why God chose Israel as a starting point to bless all the nations with the gospel is not because of their race. It has nothing to do with that. It says, God says in the Old Testament, hey, it's nothing to do with you guys or something special about you guys. It's because your tribe was the weakest tribe. You guys didn't have any might at all. And so because of that, that's why I chose you so that I can be glorified through this small, little, tiny nation at the time in the Near East. And so in the next verse, uh, Paul goes directly for the very um, heart of the gospel, which is justification by faith alone in Romans 1.17. He says... For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Actually, could you get me like a cup of water really quick? No, thank you, appreciate that. Um, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, when we hear this expression, righteousness of God, we think of righteousness of God. We think of God being right and just and punishing people for being evil. And um, this is actually what the uh, Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, um in the 15th century, this is what he thought, or 16th century, he thought that that's what it was saying. Is that oh yeah, God's righteousness of God is God, you know, meeting out punishment on evil people. That's what God's justice and righteousness is all about. Is just God meeting out this this punishment on wicked people. And um, when when Martin Luther had that understanding of righteousness of God, he said that he had hatred for God. He felt fear and hatred towards God. But what Luther found out is that this phrase, righteousness of God, here in in this very verse, Romans 117, is not teaching that God just punishes sinners, rather the opposite. It's teaching that God justifies sinners and that God uh, gives us this righteous verdict from him, this legally righteous verdict that declares us righteous even though we are sinners. And um, it's like how a um, Judge declares you right or it's a legal verdict from a judge that's a legal legal verdict of innocence from a judge and so this is a righteous status a legally righteous status from god to declare your life right give you the divine stamp of approval over your life and when when martin luther realized this amazing truth that by faith he has this legal verdict from god he said this thank you so much buddy i appreciate that I can't keep it together, I'm falling apart, (laughs) falling back. Um, um, Okay, so Martin Luther says, I felt that I had been born anew and that the gates of heaven had been opened. The whole scripture gained a new meaning and from that point on the phrase, the justice of God or righteousness of God no longer filled me with hatred but rather became unspeakably sweet by virtue of a great love. And so this gospel truth of God declaring you righteous by faith alone transformed his life and continues to transform lives today. Um, Now, this is interesting. um, There were people when I was going to um, undergrad and grad who said that, um, the righteousness of God didn't mean that. And there was a whole movement on this called the New Perspective on Paul. And basically what they said is that Luther misunderstood everything. All scholars have misunderstood what the righteousness of God has, has meant. And it doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. Um, but thankfully that's been overturned. Um, and by by scholars looking at the phrase righteousness of God throughout Paul's letters and outside of the New Testament, they have found that, yeah, Luther was right. You know, shock, Surprise! When you read the Bible, it just becomes becomes obvious that he was right. Luther was right, and that yes, by faith we receive this righteous verdict from God, this it declared innocent and righteous verdict from God. And um, if you just read the Bible, you can see that that Luther was right, and that the and that the early church was right. And so this is why most New Testament scholars now, thankfully, uh, you know, would agree with this. Um, And you see it really clearly in Philippians 3, 8 through 9, that this is what Paul means when he says the righteousness of God. This is what that phrase means in Greek in Philippians 3, 8 through 9. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. So it's not from me that righteousness it doesn't come from inside of me, that comes from the law. So it doesn't come from me and me being good, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. So it's not his righteousness, a righteous verdict from God that depends on faith. And so, yeah, reading this passage, it becomes really clear why scholars are like, yeah, this is really clear what Paul is talking about is not his, his ability to punish people, but rather his ability to declare sinners righteous by faith. And so when we, we hear about this righteousness from God that we receive by faith, whose righteousness is in it? Because when you read Philippians It's not our righteousness, he denies that. So whose righteousness is it here? What are we talking about here? And uh, the Bible answers this question in 1 Corinthians 1, 29-31. It says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So our whole lives are viewed and covered by an unlosable suit of righteousness. And that righteousness is a righteousness of Jesus Christ. And uh, as Romans 1:17 says, this righteousness is revealed to us when we believe in Jesus Christ. That's how we get that righteousness. It is revealed when we trust in Jesus. And you see this uh, expression from faith for faith. And what that means is that um, the central way we get this, the only way we get this is through faith. From faith, from beginning to end, it's all from faith that we get this righteousness from God. And that's why the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, which we read and which you know, Paul is quoting right now, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. And so when he's talking about live, he's talking about eternal life, not just like you're gonna like live 50, 60 years. When he's talking about the righteous shall live by faith, the live there refers to eternal life. And so, yeah, you read this, and you're like, yeah, it's really clear that we receive this legally righteous verdict from God by believing in. Jesus, and our lives are declared righteous, Uh, you know, the doctrine of salvation by faith alone, the doctrine by salvation or justification by faith alone, it's really clearly taught here. When you read it and you think about it, and we as evangelical Christians, we're so proud of that, aren't we, that we got this doctrine down? You're like, all right, I've heard all this before. I've heard about justification or salvation by faith alone. I got this doctrine down. I mean, we really got this down. We're not like those other people out there who believe in a works-based salvation, not like those people. We We as evangelicals, we really got our doctrine down so we can really feel good and self-righteous about ourselves, right? But the problem is, uh, while you may hold to the doctrine of justification by faith alone and grace alone, let me tell you, you and I do not practice it in our lives. We do not live out justification by faith alone. I do not live out justification by faith alone in my own life because while we may believe in the truth of this, We don't live it out on a functional level because you and I are constantly pacing our identity and value and worth and accomplishments on on how we're acting and our status in life. We're, we're, We're basing our identity on these things, on how well your relationships are even going, how you're even doing in church or how you are helping others. We're basing our identity on what we're doing. We're constantly Trying to justify our existence. Almost everything we do in life can be traced back to this. You know that we want to show and prove to people that uh, what we do matters, and that our existence actually matters and means something. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm sick. I do this myself for for church stuff. I mean, when I'm serving God and serving stuff in the church, I do this all the time. Um, I can remember when I was in South Carolina and. Um, you know, I was a youth pastor out there for years, and I can remember if there were less kids that showed up to youth group than the previous week, I would feel like a failure. Like, oh, you're such a loser. You know, you're you know, here, here are the youth pastor, your only job here at this church. You know, why is it the youth group not growing? And then when I had more kids show up, the, the other, uh, I think they had it at Sundays, it's been so many years, but the other Sunday at night when they had it, and I had 10 extra kids, I'm like, all right. I'm making it, I'm an up-and-coming youth pastor and my ministry is vindicated and my existence is justified and I'm just a great pastor now. So you see, that is an example right there of me holding to the doctrine of justification by faith alone while in practice believing that my value and worth and identity is determined by how well youth group is going. And we do things like this all the time, and there are so many people that think that if they get promoted or get raises at their work, that that they're not, you know, a failure anymore. But if they if they if they don't get promoted, then they are they don't matter much. They don't mean much. Uh, I mean, I meet parents who feel like if their children are struggling in life and they don't go to the right colleges or bad things are happening, then they're just a failure as a parent, and their whole life is meaningless now because they messed up. You know, as being a parent. And if they feel like their kids are doing really well, then they brag about them and show off, oh, look how well my kids are doing. I'm so amazing. I've worked so hard for this. I'm finally not a failure. You see, we just constantly regularly link our identity and our vindication in our lives to our activity. We're just, we just, Americans, we love to work and be active just to base our identity. We're addicted to it. We are really addicted to it. And you know that when you watch any motivational speaker or you watch any motivational video on YouTube, I mean, those people are pulling at the fact that we're trying to vindicate ourselves by activity, you know? You want to get to the next level and be a success. Constantly basing activity and your works and your achievements and finding your identity in that. And um, we find, we all know, that no matter how much we do or don't do, it never seems like enough, does it? Trying to justify uh, your existence by achievements is like trying to fill a a bottomless hole because when we try to root our identity and value in our achievements then we get exhausted Um, we get so worn out having to constantly produce activity to feel like we're We matter and that we're worth something. I mean, even uh, Madonna, I read earlier, pointed out this kind of exhaustion that is had by realizing that no matter what you do, you never feel like you're enough. You're never making it. And the reason why that is, is because only Jesus is enough. He's the only one. If you trust in Christ, then you root your identity in his achievement, not yours, his righteousness, not yours, his obedience, not yours. And then, then and only then will you find true and lasting rest. This is why Jesus says this. People say, you know, people are confused by this passage. But this is why Jesus states this in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. That's the human condition right there. We're, we're heavy, we're working, we feel just worn out, beat down. And he, but Jesus says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when you come to Jesus, you can give up basing your life on how much you're achieving or not achieving. You don't have to justify your existence. Jesus has justified that for you. And so when people give you constructive criticism or take things from you, you don't feel like you have to fight tooth and nail because you're resting in Jesus' identity, not yours. So that everything a person says is on an attack on your whole being and identity, you can just relax and love people and find joy in Christ and serving others rather than draining things from people, draining things. Am I getting enough affirmation from this person, from my spouse, from my kids, from my relationships? Am I sucking enough stuff out of people for me to feel vindicated? We don't have to do that anymore. We find our identity in Christ. We, work from already being declared righteous in Christ, we don't get exhausted. And we can just help and bless people. But the last reason why trying to find our identity and our achievements will never bring this true rest is because deep down inside, if we're really being honest and we're really diving deep within our souls, we know there is something deeply, deeply wrong with us. Um, We know that we are constantly falling short of God's demands. We know that. We know we're not measuring up to the standard of perfect, perpetual obedience that God, who is a perfect being, by the way, He's not imperfect, He's perfect. His standard is perfect. And we know in our heart of hearts, the law written on our heart, we know we are just not making that. And so, what do we try to do? I will do this, I will do that, I will do this to try to cover up my sin and my shame and my guilt. I'll just do more things, you know, just add more stuff to it. And somehow, maybe, just maybe, I'll cancel it out. And we've done that. There's nothing we can do, though, that'll ever cancel it out. Because what's evil is evil, and there's no change in the past, as they would say. And even unbelievers know this on on some level. Um, I love how... um, the song from Linkin Park, "What I've Done," captures this reality, and I know what the lyrics are, because if you want to know, it is actually the uh, the sound of my it's my ringtone is this song. So I listen to it every day because I appreciate like the deep existential angst of this song. Um, shows you I'm kind of a dark person. So <laughs> you're like, wow, this pastor has Linkin Park as his not worship music. What's the matter with you, Nate? Okay, don't don't judge. Um, <laughs> So this is what it says, in this farewell, there's no blood, there's no alibi, because I've drawn the regret from the truth of a thousand lives. So let mercy come and wash away what I've done. I'll face myself to cross out what I've become, erase myself, and let go of what I've done. Now, right there, that's an unbeliever who is painfully aware that he is just not right. There is something wrong. He cannot cross out the evil that he's done. He's struggling with it. He wants to let it go, but he wants to just eradicate and erase himself. So you see that achievement, it's good works, donating to charity, helping the homeless, it doesn't erase the evil that we have done and that we continue to do on a daily basis. It is... The worse than we really even think it is. It is much bad, much, much bad, like going, I'm talking like a five-year-old. Um, it's much worse than we think it is, um, because the prophet Isaiah says, our best works, he's talking to not, you know, people that don't believe in God, or people that, you know, reject God. He's talking to believers. He says, our best works are as filthy rags And that's especially true when we compare that to the the white clothes of righteousness in Jesus Christ. You see, anything we do in life, there's always a little bit of selfishness mixed in there. If we're really being honest and reflecting deeply what's inside of us. And so because of our constant and regular sins against God, we will find that basing our identity off works and accomplishments is not only empty, but it's just completely hopeless. And we only have one place to turn I love how um, Calvin puts it, John Calvin. He says, even if we were to examine just one minute of our lives, we would find ourselves worthy of eternal death. Indeed, each one of us would discover ourselves to be sinners, not in just one area but a hundred thousand not not to someone fault but countless millions now if even we ourselves acknowledge that we are full of so many blemishes surely God is aware of many more than we could ever perceive because he sees more deeply than we ever can thus the case is settled. The verdict is that no one can be justified by the law. Justification is through faith alone. I want to stress something here. Calvin, I mean, all this guy did all of his life, I mean, was pretty much preach and read books. I mean, pretty clean life here, right? He didn't have iPhones and Facebooks and all sorts of things, video games, to waste his time for hours. He wrote books, he read books, he pastored and studied. I mean, Calvin is a guy who had many, many leather-bound books. He didn't have Google like we do where he could look up gossip and smack about celebrities and sports stars. He didn't have any of that those major time wasters that we have. Calvin didn't have a Facebook where he could stalk old high school friends, compare himself to them and say, "Gosh, they're doing better than I. I'm pretty jealous of so and so from high school or college or whatever." Calvin didn't have Disney Plus or Netflix where he can binge watch Loki or Walking Dead. He didn't have those things. He was a guy with a beard that read books, pretty boring life, but yet he says millions of sins that he's aware of. He knew that his heart was not right before God. He was constantly failing God's perfect standard of righteousness. And this is not only Calvin's problem, it's our big problem, it's my big problem, it's our biggest problem. Our problem is we want to be right. We're trying to be right we are not right. We are trying to be righteous, and we constantly fall short. And this problem gets infinitely greater, we realize that someday we're gonna stand before an infinitely perfect, righteous, and holy God whose eyes, as the book of Habakkuk says, his eyes are so pure, so perfected, he can't even look upon sin, and yet you and I, we sin every minute. And so what will we say on that day when we could, you and I, could, we could die at any moment. There's no guarantees in life. We have to face God. You don't know when you're gonna face God. I don't know when I'm gonna face God. So what will you say when you have to stand before him? Like we all will have to stand before him. What will you say in your defense when you are confronted with him who is infinite holiness and righteousness and majesty? What will we say? I know that I can only say one thing I believe in Jesus. I trust in Jesus. He is my only hope. I have no righteousness of my own. He is the only righteousness I have. He is all I have and all I need to go to heaven. As him put it, I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And there's nothing in my hand I bring only to your cross I cling. And do you know what that infinitely holy just God will say to you on that day of judgment, when you say those things, when you say things like that to him, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And so the solution to our biggest problems in life is Jesus Christ and him alone. So I ask if you haven't found shelter, rest, and refuge in Jesus Christ, then I'd ask that you do this, this morning, that you place your trust in him, not in your achievements, not finding your identity in a, just an exhausting quest, a self-salvation project, but only finding your identity in Christ. When you do that, you will have rest now and forever. Let us pray. Gracious God, we are so thankful that we are trying to root our identity in you and we try it in ourselves, and we base our lives off what we have done instead of what you have done for us. We only find despair and misery. We can never measure up to your perfect standard, Lord, for you are the greatest, and you have the greatest standard, the most perfect standard, and there's only one person who fulfilled that standard in our place by his life, his death, his resurrection. That's you, Lord Jesus. May you be glorified this morning. Amen.